0: Good morning, everybody. All right. Well, as is our custom, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we are going to start um, actually in Exodus 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 22. And I'm going to read all the way through the end of verse 16. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. This is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to your God, the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, If you pay attention to his commands and decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. They then came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seven palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they are to gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know it was the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? We, You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert and there was the glory of the Lord in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? Because they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is bread. It is the bread the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Each morning, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses and they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it till morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, and that is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed. And tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So that when they see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness, when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law. So it might be preserved the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord Thanks be to God God. you all can have a seat So as one said earlier this is the second week of our sermon series on emotionally healthy spirituality um, and so we 'll be doing that for the next couple weeks, leading into the Bible study that we 're doing this fall, focused on the same topic. Um, today, I really just want to walk through this story um, and we 're going to do a lot of narrative because God is always in the midst of a story. We come into one piece of the Bible, um, but God is God is doing something over time and over space and over history, and I think it 's really important to get the context of what God is doing because when we take something on its own, we actually miss what it's part of. Um, so that's why we read such a long part of it, and I'm actually going to start a little bit before that, as I tell you. Um, as we think about this, I really want you to think about, I think it's easy for some of us who have been in church, some of us haven't, but even if you're thinking about it, it seems like a story that's, that's way out there, that just happened a long time ago, and we can just kind of listen to it and move on. But I really want to challenge you as we go through this to think and put yourself in the midst of the story, not because we are in the story but because this is real things happening to real people, and there's a lot going on. So as, as we walk through it, I just encourage you to really think about what's going on and, and put yourself in that place, what it might feel like, what it might taste like, what it might smell like. The book of Exodus is a story of God calling and transforming a people. In the book of Genesis, God creates everything, and then God tells the stories of different people, different families, right? We have Adam and Eve, and then Noah, and then Jacob and Isaac, missed someone in there, but they're individual people, right? And then you have Joseph, the son of, or you have 12 sons of Jacob, and you have Joseph who gets told, and he's, you know, risen to the heights of Egyptian government, second in command to the Pharaoh, right? And all of the Israelites, they go, but it's really just told through this one family, right? This one family with 12 sons, and they end up in Egypt, because in, um, in Israel, where they are, there's no food, and when they get to Egypt, Egypt has prepared for this famine. And that's a whole other story, but we're not going to talk about it. But they have prepared. So there's lots of food there. So this family um, goes to Egypt from Israel. They find their brother there who, who is, is giving out food. And so they settle there. And so when the book of Exodus opens up, we see that it's a story of people that now have not any recognition of Joseph, not any recognition that this was somebody important. But these are all the descendants of Joseph. And they're worried because they as Egyptians are have these people and they're getting, there's a lot of them, right? And so they decide that they being in power are going to gonna force them um, with violence to, to be their slaves, to do labor. And so when we come into the book of Exodus, it's, it's telling the story not just of people in that line, but of a people, of a group of people, of the people of God um, that are coming together. Um, to be God's people, not just one family going through things. So the first few chapters of Exodus tell the story of Moses being called by God to be the leader of these people, the Israelites. Moses stands up to Pharaoh, demanding that he let the Israelites go and worship in the desert, and Pharaoh doesn't let them, right? Pharaoh refuses. Pharaoh keeps them under um, forced labor and enslavement. Moses, following God's instructions, engages in this pattern with Pharaoh, asking for freedom, say, let us go and worship our God. And then Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. And then he decides, oh, maybe not. And then God, through Moses, cast these horrible plagues, these natural disasters, um, 10 of them against um, Egypt, right? And so the Israelites aren't affected by these plagues. They're kind of off to the side in a different part of the land, but they're witness to all of this, right? They're They've been enslaved. Another witness to these things where water turns to blood, there's so many animals and frogs and gnats and flies that regular life can't go on. It's destroying everything, right? Um, thunderstorms so fierce with hail so large that it just wipes out everything in its path. Um, and we go on and on. And then finally, after the last horrible plague, Pharaoh finally relents and lets them go. And so they start going after being enslaved for 430 years is what we learn in Exodus 12. And if we think about that, granted, people lived a little bit longer in biblical times, but however you calculate it, it's somewhere between five and ten generations. So that's not you, your parents, your grandparents, their parents, their parents again, and possibly more than that, have all been living as enslaved people. That's all they ever knew. Um, So there's that trauma. It's, It's... oppressive, there's subjugation, there's a way that they've lived that has em, embodied and, and, and really taken in that reality. And then there's all these plagues that happen, and they've seen this. They've seen this like 10 plagues in 10 days, right? Ten. Think of seeing like a tornado one day and a really bad thunderstorm the next day, a hurricane the next day, and all happening to the same place. And you're bearing witness to this. And so the, the Israelites go because Pharaoh... Let's them go because he's been so devastated by these plagues. But then one last time, after the Israelites have gone out a little bit, then Pharaoh changes his mind again, right? And so then the Egyptian army, which is very powerful and very large, with horses and chariots, are coming out and just trying to chase these Israelites. And in a legit panic, they're going to Moses and saying, you brought us out here so we could die. Why did you ask for us to go if they're just going to come and kill us. It would have been better just to stay and stay enslaved. And then Moses, at God's direction, they're at the edge of the Red Sea, this large body of water. Moses parts the Red Seas, and the water's going up. The Israelites walk across. The soldiers are still coming behind them. And the water closes just as the Israelites get across. And the soldiers, then they're witnessing these soldiers and these horses dying, drowning, right? Right? So this is where we end up, or this is what has just preceded this, this wilderness narrative where, where God is providing manna. In the second half of chapter 15, verse 25, it says, There the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right, if you pay attention to his command and keep his degrees, I will not bring any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I think if I hear that from my lens, I think, why is God testing these people? Why is God being conditional with these people who have gone through all this stuff? Why is God saying, now only if you do these things will, will I take care of you? But I think we have to take a step back and say, in the ancient days, you remember God had created people. And in Exodus, God was in the midst of life with people. God showed up in a cloud. God showed up in the stillness. God was talking directly to the people of God, sometimes through Moses, sometimes just directly to them. And so God is not really saying, if you do this, then God is saying, this is just a fact. I am in relationship with you. If you pay attention to what I tell you to do, I will take care of you. And you will not have any of the diseases, meaning the plagues, But this disease also means you will not have any of the oppression or the slavery or you will be well if you follow the things. This is how we're going to be in relationship because you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And so God isn't threatening to exit a relationship with the people of God. God is saying, this is how I want to be with you. God said, I've created you and this is how you can reflect my image by being with me. And so if the Israelites obey God, who is in their midst, literally telling them this is what you need to do, they're going to be okay. And that it's God who will bring them healing. God identifies himself at that point as the God who heals. And that is good news to a people who have been through some stuff, right? It is in God's nature to bring healing, physical healing, emotional healing, Spiritual healing, healing to the world, to circumstances, that is in God's nature. It's in the God's nature to bring shalom and wholeness and bring things into the way God intended it. And so God does that in every area of our lives and in every situation. And so when we get into Exodus 16, where God, faithful to God's nature as healer, we see that God heals in oppressed people, a broken people by patiently holding their pain and their emotions and their trauma and imprinting a new narrative of God's provision and God's care. And so today we're going to talk about three ways that we respond to this God who heals by trusting God, right? So first, we respond to our healing God by owning our emotions and trusting that God will hold them. The second way we respond to our healing God is by letting go of control and submitting ourselves to communal practices and accountability. And finally, we respond to our healing God by participating with God in becoming what God is shaping us to be. So first, we respond to our God by owning our emotions and trusting God to hold them. So the people that we encounter in Exodus 16 have just entered a wilderness, a new place. They're physically safe, but they're in a new place. They're weary, they're tired, they're thirsty, they're hungry. They carry with them the oppression and the trauma and the history of the last 400 years in slavery. They carry it in their bodies and in their minds and in their spirits. Simply by nature of who God has made them to be, they carry this heaviness because God feels and God knows. And so they carry this with them, they're just trying to survive. And they're grumbling. (laughs) How many of you all grumble on a regular basis, complain, argue? Like every hand should be up. I know I do this, right? And they're doing what I often will do. And instead of saying, hey, I am upset or I am anxious because it's coming, I want to blame it on somebody else and say it's, it's their problem, right? And so instead of owning what's actually going on, the Israelite community, they're, they're afraid, they're in a new place, they're anxious, they don't have enough to eat, They don't know if they're going to have enough to eat. They don't know if they're going to survive. And so they're grumbling. They're grumbling to Moses and to God. And God knowing them and having been with them from the beginning of time and the beginning of their time in Egypt. Having literally been in their midst and walking and speaking to them. God responds to their grumbling in two ways. One with a plan that's going to alleviate their hunger and thirst. So God has a plan that he shares. And God just receives their grumbling. God doesn't tell them, oh, you shouldn't be grumbling. Oh, I just brought you out of Egypt. I just opened the seas. I just gave you water because I threw, like Moses threw a piece of wood. How do you not, like God doesn't do that. God just receives and takes and understands that this is a reasonable reaction from a people who have been through some stuff. And so in in verse 8, Moses and Aaron Name the reality to the people that, hey, you think you're grumbling to us as your leaders, as your human leaders that you can see, but we know you're actually grumbling and complaining to the God who you can't always see. We know that you might think you're blaming us, but I know or we know that you're actually blaming God for feeling broken and anxious and scared. And so in verse 9, Aaron tells the people, the whole community of Israel— Come before the Lord, for God has heard you. And in verse 10, as Aaron is speaking, God actually shows up. The glory of the Lord shows up in a cloud. And as we keep going, it says, God says, I have heard your grumbling. God is speaking directly to his people. I have heard your grumbling, and you'll eat meat in the evening and bread in the morning. God hears the people that he created. God is being patient and compassionate. God knows everything they're holding in their bodies and in their minds and their spirits. And God holds their difficult feelings with grace and compassion, love and care, and without any sort of judgment. God hears their cries and their grumbling. God holds their collective story as an oppressed people, broken down, worn out. God holds their individual stories, their individual pain as daughters and sons and mothers and fathers, neighbors and friends and worshipers. The Lord who heals can hold difficult emotions, pain and trauma for a people that God made. And God is journeying with these people to make them a new people, one that is not devoid of the trauma, but has transformed that into something else. And so our God is a God of healing, the one who brings healing and wholeness to our lives. And so the first way that we respond to this God who's, who has shown himself to be able to hold all of what we have and all of our emotions is to own them and to name them and trust that God will do and be who God is. When we're on a journey towards becoming more emotionally healthy, we're trying to love ourselves well, love God well, love each other well, and love this world well. And because we live in a broken world that is um, infested by sin on every level, We don't do that naturally, and so we have to work on that. We see in Exodus 16 that God receives all these reactive feelings, all the feelings of scarcity and anxiety and fear and discontent. And we know that God created us in God's image, and so though we're all wired differently, though we all come from different family systems and different cultures, we're all at different places in this journey of what it means to actually live into being whole emotionally. But wherever we are, we can continue to move into that and be continue to come into what God is doing because God can hold that and God knows us. And so what are some very practical ways that we can actually name to God? And, and I don't know about you, but I've, I've grown up in ways that emotions aren't even a Christian thing sometimes because they distract us from being part of who God is. They're not as trustworthy as maybe our faith or our logic should be. But the reality is because God created us that way, we need to learn how to actually understand our emotions because God is actually speaking to us and using them to do the work of God. And so what are some very practical ways that we can respond um, to actually own our emotions and entrust them to God? Um, There's a lot of different ways. Um, If if you didn't get a chance um, to hear the panel last week of our mental health professionals, I really encourage you to... um, to listen to that. There's some very practical advice there. A um, couple other things that maybe would be helpful is read the Psalms. Pick a Psalm. Psalm is sort of a book of prayers. It's in the middle of the Bible, and it ex- expresses every kind of emotion from joy to pain to sorrow to anger, <laughs> um, rage, you might even say, all kinds of... And And read them and challenge yourself to pray expressing the emotions that you feel and see in the Psalms. And as you pray... Pause and leave space so that you can hear what your body is reacting, or how it's how it's where is it tight, what's what's flinching, or what are you what are you doing? And take some time to note how you feel and how God is responding to you, and to bring that back to God. A couple of other ways: um, if you go onto the if you came in, there's these packets that have some printouts, or if you go on the website, there's a, re, a resource that under the sermon title that says emotional resources or emotion resources. Um, Some of us are not people that like to use our words (laughs) very well or don't use them very well naturally. So there's some visual references that you can look at. And I realize we don't have a screen and it's probably the first time I'm a little bit upset about that. But um, there's two sheets. One of them is this um, several pictures of a little girl um, that depicts different feelings. So there's like a thoughtful one, an angry one, happy, surprised, disappointed, scared. So if you need a place to start, that might be one place to start and say, which one of these looks like me right now and why? They're also really good for children. There's another one here that's a um, a tree with a bunch of uh, blob-looking people, and they're numbered. Um, and this is something a coworker of mine showed, that you look at the tree and see which of these people, they're at different points on the tree, they're in different groupings and looking different ways and have different faces, but which one of these feels like you? Which one of them looks like you? And then which one of them looks like what you want to be right now? And think about that, right? For those of you who are a little more wordy-based, I know you can't read any of this, but there is another a wheel here, and in the middle um, there's a, a psychologist that kind of did some work on the core eight emotions, And so they're bad, happy, surprised, disgusted, angry, and fearful. And then as you go out on the wheel, there's more and more descriptive words as to, like, you know, if you feel surprised, do you feel confused or amazed? And then there's another layer outside of that. So sometimes, like, when we don't have words to describe our emotions, here's a bunch of words. (laughs) And think about, you know, what are the differences? And in what situations do you feel less or more of a certain thing. Um, maybe there's an emotion that you don't feel at all. Why is that? Maybe there's an emotion you feel all the time, or, or maybe you don't feel anything at all. Like, what, what is overwhelming that you can't feel that at all? So those are just some tools that um, feel free to reference or to pull up online. And another thing is maybe you've already engaged in this journey of emotional health and awareness, and maybe you've engaged with God, you've engaged with others. Another way you can just invite somebody into something that you're feeling and somebody that you trust and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking and feeling. Like, help me process this and sit in the awkwardness because it is awkward and be okay with somebody who you trust and that God has brought into your life. But maybe you've already been on this journey, and, and maybe it's too raw, Or maybe you've already tried to talk to other people, and it might be helpful to talk to a professional. Um, There's another resource that's on the website, as well as there's copies in the back um, that some of our church members have put together um, that's just titled Mental Health Resources. So it has some referrals for counselors and support groups and other, even just websites that are helpful. Um, So it's a spectrum, right? We're all on this journey of, of emotional health, and we know that we have a God who holds us, holds our emotions, and holds that. But wherever we are in the journey, we can continue to live into that and to live into what God is calling us to do. So the first way we respond to our healing God is by owning our emotions and trusting that God will hold them. The second way we respond to our healing is by choosing to let go of control and trusting God's provision. So if the first 12 verses of Exodus 16 tell the story of a people grumbling in their fears and anxiety... And these people are heard by God who provides for them, right? Verses 4 and 12 are key because they speak into God's purpose for the 40 years that they will be spending in the wilderness. Verse 4 says God will provide nourishment. God will provide bread from heaven or the manna each day, and God will provide quail as well. God says every day you're to get what you need. On the sixth day you get double, and on the seventh day you do nothing, right? And then the verse, verse 12 talks about what they're doing as well. And we see God is actually forming a people in this. God is giving them tasks to do, but that's not really what God is doing. God is forming a people. And God is reminding them that I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of Israel. I will bring you to the next place. And these things that God is giving them to do, are ways to remind them and to slowly transform them to live into their identity as belonging to the God who created them. And so the second part of the passage, starting in verse 30, tells a story of how God sets up these practices and these patterns for the Israelites to shape them into this people. And so starting in verse 15, we see that manna does indeed come in the morning. And then Moses tells them that this bread is from heaven and to gather as much as they need, and to end with about an omer, which is about two quarts. So it's about half a gallon per person for each person in their tent. And then whatever is left, they need to get rid of. And the Israelites, they follow Moses' instructions. And I think what's interesting is he gives a specific amount. But then he also said, gather as much as you need, right? So some people, they just go out and gather. I don't think they have scales or measuring tools or anything like that. They just go out and they gather what they think they need. Some people end up with more. Some people end up with less. But when they go come back and they measure it and they divide it up, they have exactly what they need. So the people that have five people in their tent has whatever the calculation is. They have five omers, right? The people that have three have three. Everybody has exactly what they need. And yet, even in that, right, somebody's going to say, I'm going to get too much, right? Or I'm going to, God says, once the day is over, get rid of it. And they take too much. And then it goes bad. And so... Even in the midst of God saying, this is what we need to do. There's still the anxiety and the scarcity that some people are expressing to say, I don't know if that's going to be enough. And they're resting the control back into their own hands saying, I'm going to make sure, even though God said this, I'm going to make sure I have enough. And God doesn't let that happen, right? It just goes away. Like God is using this process and this procedure to teach them something. I find it funny in verse 20 that Moses says, it says that Moses was angry with the people when they took too much and then the maggots came and it smelled. But what it doesn't say is God isn't angry with them, right? Like God almost expects it. God doesn't say anything because he knows that it will take some people some time, right? And so they go out and then Moses gives them other instructions and says, you know, gather twice as much as you need on the sixth day. On the seventh day, you'll not gather anything. And that sort of sets up the precursor for the Sabbath, but this isn't what that is. This is just what God is telling them to do. And in care and kindness, you know, even though people, again, go out on day seven and try to find something, even though they were told, again, you know, gather enough on one on days one through five, day six, gather double, and then don't go out on day seven. But still, after seeing the maggots, there's some other people that are still like, I still think I need some more. I still think... I can't let go, and I can't trust God, so I'm going to go and get some more. And then we see, um, again, God doesn't condemn anybody. God just asks a question, right? God, um, God says to most, like, when, when are you going to get with it, right? When are you going to be able to do it? And then what God says is, you know, he just explains why. He says the reason that we're doing this is because you gather enough, and then I want you to rest on the seventh day like I rested. And so God is saying, I want you to have the opportunity to trust me. That's why we're doing it this way. So God just explains it. And then we find out, oh, eventually, right, um, they, they follow the procedure. Um, if I put myself in the shoes of the people that are gathering I would be somebody who'd be like, I don't, I don't know about this. I'm going to try to make sure that I have enough. I've gone all these years, and all, you know, my parents and grandparents and their grandparents, like, they've never had enough. They've always had to work, and even then they weren't treated well. I'm going to make sure I have enough. But God is gracious and compassionate and lets them keep practicing this, and they practice it for years and years and years, right? And eventually they let go. Like, it doesn't tell us whether, like, this happened in the first week or the first year or the 10th year. It just says this is what happened. And over time, people were able to let go of the control, release their anxiety, and trust the process and trust what God is doing. So what does it actually mean to let go of the control? It means acknowledging that we do have the anxiety. I am worried (laughs) that I'm not going to have enough manna, but I'm not going to act on it. I'm not going to say, God, you can't do this, so I'm going to control the outcome. I'm actually going to take a breath and step out in faith and say I'm going to trust that God will provide just like God provided yesterday, just like God provided for my neighbors, God will provide enough for me. Dr. Jim Bruckner, an Old Testament scholar, writes, people set free from bondage are at risk of misunderstanding their freedom and turning to new forms of self-chosen bondage. So these 40 years, right, people have been in bondage, enslaved. They've, They've lived a certain way forever, like forever. This is just life. And so God knew left to their own devices, people would just go and do what they needed to do. They'd live out of not having enough. They wouldn't live in abundance, and they just would do whatever they needed to get what they needed. And so this rhythm that God was putting in place was so that people be transformed from an anxious, scarce, focused people just figuring out how to survive to becoming a people who could be non-anxious and trusting that God would provide and could live in abundance. So the second way that we respond to our healing God is by letting go of control and submitting ourselves to communal practices and accountability. So once the Israelites let go of how they thought they would feed themselves and they submitted to God's way, then God gives them the Sabbath, right? And so Sabbath is a gift. And, I mean, I know at our church we talk a lot about Sabbath, but Sabbath is a gift. It's an opportunity to trust God when it doesn't make any sense to trust God, right? In a world where we work at least five days a week, sometimes more, And there's always work to do. We're always leaving something there. There's always some way to be productive, right? There's even a way in our home. We could clean the house or we could cook this or do that. There's always a way to be productive. But when God says, I want you to rest, God is saying, this is your regular opportunity to trust that I will give you what you need. And so when God gives us that, it's an opportunity for us to actually go deeper into what God is doing. And so some of us, I know, practice Sabbath. Some of us may not. But I would invite you to really think about what you're doing if you're doing Sabbath. And how can you be more intentional? Or, or maybe maybe you're being too intentional. Maybe you just need to create space for what God is doing in that time. Um, but take some time to think about that. If you're not doing it, um, and, and I know for some of us, 24 hours seems like a really long time. And for some of us, we may need to work six or seven days a week. And we just simply can't. Take 24 hours. But start with what you can. The reality or the the intention is to be intentional, right? Like take half a day, take 10 minutes a day to stop and to breathe or maybe just to listen to your breath and be reminded that God is in you and that God is working. Sabbath is an opportunity, however we can implement it, to cease striving and to release our own desire to control our lives. Because I know if I don't stop, I'm just grasping and trying to make it happen. But when I'm forced to stop, I can remember that God is there. I can listen to my body. I can listen and make time to hear from my friends who are doing things and giving life. Another practical way to respond to God and to submit, um, to give up our control, and to practice together what it means to be the people of God, um, is to be part of, of what god is doing at church right so that might you might be doing that by just showing up every sunday morning i know i don't take that for granted i think some of us like it takes a lot to get here on a sunday morning and that may be your way of saying i'm going to submit and worship with people and and bring my stuff another way might be is to actually come to the bible study that we're doing this fall um as it been mentioned a lot of times um we're working on <clears throat> a curriculum called emotionally healthy spirituality um And this really just will engage um, really an integrated approach to learning about what God is doing, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, with our souls, and with all of who we are. Um, It'll try to create a safe space intentionally to explore your emotions. So maybe like what you heard I was saying before, like having to listen to yourself and and name yourself, you're like, that sounds nice in theory, but if I actually have to figure out how to do that, I, I don't really want to do that. But this is a space where you can show up and we can do it together, right? You'll be guided and there'll be exercises and there'll be passages and it'll be a safe space. You don't have to share exactly what you're thinking or feeling, but you'll have to do it. And you can do it with other people. So if there is something going on, you can sit and get prayed for by other people. Or you can just sit in the presence as you're feeling sad or lonely and saying, hey, look, there's these people that care about me and being reminded that God can show up through each other, right? Um, so all that to say, I could go on about this. I think it's been very transformative in my own life, um, to say that I can't fully be following God to the best of what God is calling me to do if I'm not emotionally healthy. Like I have found that to be true and it's a journey and it's hard, but it's really good. You know, God shows up in, in those ways. So I'd be happy to talk to you about it more. We have books in the back. Um, talk to one of our pastors. I'm sure they'd be glad to talk to you. So the first way we respond to our God who heals is by owning our emotions and trusting God to hold them. The second way we respond to our healing God is by letting go of control and submitting to communal practices and accountability. And then finally, the last way we respond to our healing God is by participating with God in what God is doing and making meaning of that. In Exodus 31, 16, verses 31 to 35, we see sort of a postscript to the story of the Israelites in the wilderness, because we see that the people have now been transformed. They're no longer grumbling. They're following what God is asking. But it's been 40 years, and the people who are relying on God, knowing that God who has provided, God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who they belong to, the same God will bring them into the next thing. They're standing on the precipice or on the corner, on the edge of the promised land that they've been promised for as many generations as they've been in Egypt, that someday they will get out and they will get to this promised land. They're on the edge of that. And so now that they've spent 40 years in this wilderness practicing the presence of God, practicing, trusting God, they can now trust God to move forward into the next chapter of whatever God is doing. And so what it says is, you know, take an omer of manna that was taken. So one portion of manna was taken and preserved for the generations to come. And we see that in verse 34, Aaron is putting this manna with the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments. So this is how we know. This is kind of a little note that's written after the fact because the Ten Commandments is actually not until Exodus 20. I think it's later than that, actually. But it's later in Exodus. But the reason that the writer of Exodus is telling us this is because the manna has now become something not that is a means of getting the people to trust God and to live into the way God is wanting them to. The manna is now something to remember what God has done, right? So they're saying, put this manna with the Ten Commandments, which is, again, something very important um, to the Israelites. Take it and hold it up, and remember not just that God got you here, not just that God got you to the place where you could trust him and that you you could be real with him, but that God took you through all this stuff. God took you through the 40 years that it took. God took you through the, through the 400 years of enslavement and trauma and oppression. And God did that. And so God brings them out of Egypt. But the healing um, care that God exercised for them, um, the ability for them, um, their emotions and their pain to be held by God, Those are the things that when they see the manna there with the Ten Commandments, they're also to remember, right, that God could hold them. And so the manna becomes a symbol of God's people participating in the work of God. When they were in um, the wilderness and doing the things that God had told them, they're just doing it. They're, They're going out to gather. They're taking, you know, twice as much on the sixth day, and they're not doing it on the seventh. They repeat it, and they repeat it, and they repeat it but over time god is making everything new god is transforming the people and so one of the reasons why i started today's message with a lot of context other than the fact that i find it interesting and powerful is because god is always doing something and in inviting us to participate in the middle of the story right like our lives or however many years we live but they're in the middle of the story that God is doing from age to age, from the beginning of time to the end of time. And so what God is doing in the wilderness is God doing something in the lives of the Israelites that were there. And it is God doing something as part of this larger story. And because God is always in the midst of doing something bigger than just what we can see, God invites us to participate with him in what he is doing. And so our job is to be faithful to whatever's in front of us, whatever the task or the job or the person or the day, and then holding that loosely enough to say that I know God is doing something else beyond that only God knows. But in a way, when we're just faithful to doing it, what's in front of us and being open saying, you know, we might be going this way, but God's like, actually, I want you to go that way. It's a reminder to say, God is always making us new. God is always making the world that God loves and made new and is doing something. And so God is calling us to collectively participate in the work that he's given us, whatever that is. But God is also inviting us to be part of something larger that we may or may not ever see. Um, but that God, just as God is taking the Israelites to the edge of the wilderness, to the edge, or the edge of the wilderness in the beginning of the promised land, and he used the manna as a means to get there, God is also taking us to the end of something and to the beginning of something new. And we don't really know which part of the story we end up in, but we know that God is doing something with it. So the final way we respond to our God who heals is by participating with God in becoming what God is shaping us into and what God is shaping God's world into. So when we steward our individual and collective call to participate in God's story, it means that we show up. We show up for what's in front of us. And we remember or we get ourselves around people who can remind us that God is doing something else. When the Israelites released their own scarcity and their anxiety to claim this new story that God was writing, they were able to be part of this larger story, right? We know the Bible doesn't end after Exodus. Exodus is the second book. It keeps going, and it keeps going. And so God is imprinting a new story for a new generation of people that are about to enter the promised land. Their process of stewarding the call of 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness, um, was so that they could let go of what they thought they wanted, they just wanted to survive. They just wanted to get out of slavery. They just wanted enough food to eat. That's what they were They were satisfied with that. But God wanted to take them into something much, much bigger. And God was the one that would direct that. So just as God is working in our individual and collective lives, just as God works in individual lives then, and God works in people and communities then, God does now. And just as we work and participate in the right in the work of writing systemic wrongs and and fighting against things that are unjust because we believe on this side of heaven or the next God will make all things right. But God is also working in us to make all things right. So the work that we do to name our emotions to be kind to our family to to think about the things that are affecting us and making us unable to be kind to certain people. That is God working in the same way, writing the brokenness of our past, rewriting stories of our families, and, and making something new in our own lives that we may see or we may not. Our children may be or their children may be the beneficiaries of that. So at the beginning of their time in the wilderness, the people were consumed by all of the things that had brought them to that point in the wilderness. They had the experiences they brought with them from Egypt, and then God meets them there. God meets them there in the midst of their experience, and God gives them new rhythms and new patterns that will govern their lives. They weren't focused on getting somewhere, but once they were practicing the things that God gave them, they were just practicing on being faithful and being where they were and knowing that it was God who brought them out. The task of gathering manna wasn't the goal or even the focus. It was just the means for them to remember that God was in their midst. And so as we enter this season of focusing on emotional health, and we continue to be in the process of a lot of things, right? We're in the process of perhaps acquiring a building. We're in the process, every one of us is in process of something. Let's not try to focus on the how or the tactic or the technicality or how am I going to get to the next job? How am I going to help my child do this? How am I going to get to my next goal? But let us try to be focused on what's in front of us and be slow enough to say that I can see what God is doing, even right here in this moment. So wherever you are in your emotional journey, in your faith journey, be encouraged that God only takes us to the place where God already knows we have the capacity to be and to move from. God brought the Israelites to the wilderness because he knew that in 40 years they would be transformed. They didn't know it, but God knew it. So God gives us what we need to be where we are. So let's have the courage to be where we are. And God gives us the people to be where we are and to take us to the next place. So let's have the courage to be with the people who are around, to be vulnerable, to live into the, into the awkwardness and the uncertainty, and to trust that God shows up through those people as well. God knows and invites us to participate with him in the process of making all things new, including us. And so God is with us as we are refined and transformed into someone who is still us, but is someone who is also being renewed day by day. I was at a, a Catholic retreat center with um, our leadership team and our staff this weekend, or yesterday. <laughs> not, the weekend's not over. Um, and in Catholic tradition, the cross usually has Jesus still hanging on it. We have an empty cross. But there they, they focus on the fact that Jesus hung on the cross. And what it means is that Jesus has lived our lives. Jesus has lived the deepest, darkest part of what it means to be a human being. And the empty cross that we see here means Jesus has lived the best of it and Jesus has conquered all those difficult things. So the reality that we can be with God means that God knows what we have gone through. God knows what we will go through. And God will give us the things that we need to go through them. So we can look at both the empty cross, the empty tomb, and we can look at Jesus hanging on the cross and saying Jesus is with us, regardless of what we're going through, regardless of how hard it seems or how difficult the road may look, that God is always with us. And God will always be with us. So today we talked about three things, three ways that we respond to the God who in God's very nature heals us. The first way that we respond to the God who heals is by owning our own emotions and trusting God to hold them. And so just as God held the anxiety and the fear and the scarcity and the discontent of the Israelites in the wilderness, God holds us and can receive us and can receive all of who we bring, all of who we are. Second, we respond to our healing God by letting go of control and by submitting ourselves to communal practices and accountability. And so by choosing to let go of our own desires for things, how things will work out and sub- to submitting to what God is doing and to what people are doing around us and to what the church is calling us into, we let God minister to us outside of us, right? We let God, we say, God, you're going to, I don't have to do it all myself. And I can rely upon the people of God and the church at large to help me on this journey. And lastly, we respond to our healing God by participating with God in becoming who and what God is is bringing into being. So God is in the business of making all things new, everything. And so when we show up in our present, where we are, doing the things that God has put in front of us, we just trust that God will continue to do all the things in us, and around us, and through us that God has called us to do and that God will be doing outside of anything we can ever see because God is that good, and we get to participate in that. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for being who you are. Lord, we stand in awe of just the fact that you invite us to participate into what you are doing in the world. Lord, you didn't need us to do anything, but yet you invite us to be with you and to be in relationship with you and to, to understand the good and gracious and amazing things that you're doing and that you're doing not only out there, but in us and through us. So God, Lord, I pray that you just give us the courage to do the things that you're calling us to do and give us um, the fortitude to last And when we can't, Lord, bring us around people that will give us faith, that will enhance our faith and increase our faith. Thank you for not calling us to do it by ourselves, but giving us a community of believers that we can lean on. So, Lord God, I ask that you would continue to show us and reveal to us um, as we worship you where you want us to go, what you want us to do, what you want us to listen to. Lord, make us aware of who you are in us and through us and outside of us. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.